Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. The uproar at Bloomberg today is off one article. Let me look down at the terminal. New York City landlords press finance bosses to speed return and save city. And as I said to Ann Edwards in the simulcast a bit ago, I heard the same story out of the city of London. I think it was two or three weeks ago as well. To give us perspective on this is Anthony Malkin of Empire State's Realty Trust. He's got a big fancy title other than that. What you need to know is he holds court at 501 7th Avenue at 37th, one Grand Central place at the Grand Central Terminal, 250 West 57th at Broadway. These are tangible properties of his Empire State Realty. Uh, Tony, what's what's the level of panic right now about the empty Midtown that I observe? I really don't think it's a it's a matter of panic. I think it's time for people to get out of the Hamptons and get out of Aspen and get out of the mountains and, and show up to work. The leaders who are very comfortable in their their, their country homes need to lead. Uh, people want to be back at work. The young people want to be back at work. It's a competitive advantage to those people who come back to work. It's maybe an elitist thing. I take your point on the fancy people are at the fancy properties and the people that work for them do they want to go to the office as well, or do they want to be at home? You know, I think that the, the whole issue of work from home, the death of work from home has been written. Amazon, Facebook, smartest companies, biggest companies have stated very clearly they're expanding and they're expanding in cities, they're expanding in New York City. And the fact of the matter is that you cannot understand hallway validation, what happens before the Zoom, after the Zoom, unless you're actually in the office. And uh, I attended a board meeting of a public company on whose board I sit in Minneapolis on Monday and Tuesday last week. It's so critical to be there uh, and and in person. You you just don't get the world from the shoulders up and in the length of the Zoom call. Uh, It doesn't work. What and you can you can you can maintain and you can sustain, but you cannot build and you cannot grow. But the reality is, Tony, and you and I know all the restaurants that frequent all your wonderful properties, those restaurants have to be open. Essentially, they're not. I mean, you can go down to Benoit on 55th Street, I think, and they've got their wonderful cafe outside and do the French cafe thing. Alan Ducasse, thank you. Guess what? You can't go in the restaurant. How critical is it to link your opening of real estate to their opening of restaurants? You know, the fact is that at the Empire State Building, for instance, we have a lot of services, a lot of restaurants, a lot of different food vendors. They will deliver to people's desks. They'll deliver to their offices. Uh, People need to be there for people to have the justification to open their stores and and open their doors and employ people. And, And it all starts at the top. That's where it starts. And if people are going to sit there comfortable in their and, and, and looking in there, uh, I'm tired of Zooms with people who are in their beach homes getting delivered iced tea by somebody who's off camera. You know, get to your desk. <laughs> and I, I, I take I take your message on board, Anthony. I'm not in New York. I'm not in the Hamptons. I am in London, but I am in my house. And part of that is to do with uh, keeping occupancy of office space down. It might be possible for some people to go back to offices. But do you accept that we're going to be in a sort of new normal situation in some of these big world cities where not everybody can go back at the same time? Not yet. 
I think we've got four phases, lockdown, pre-therapy vaccine, post-therapy vaccine, and then cleanup and, re and, and replanting the field, if you will. Uh, we're definitely in that phase two right now, and we've got a ways to go till we get to phase three. So there absolutely are, quote, new temporary normals, unquote, and we have to adjust and address that. That said, if people will not lead, people will not follow. And what really is interesting is the young people today ranging from their junior year in high school to two years out of college, they will follow those people who lead. And those people who sit at home will remain at a competitive disadvantage from those people who show up and work. So the bottom line is, hey, look, you need indoor environmental quality. It has been a major factor of all of our work in the over $1 billion we spent modernizing our portfolio in New York City, making it energy efficient, MERV 13 filters, ventilation, ion transfer air purification. Uh, we have a benefit in our buildings to the fact that they are older, so they didn't used to have centralized air conditioning systems. Consequently, fan rooms are located per floor. You're not recirculating the air for the entire building when you cool or heat an individual floor. That said, you can make these changes, you can make these adjustments, and people need to adjust and adapt. That's true. That doesn't mean that you don't try and you don't start. Those people who do are going to win. So, Anthony, um, what do you think people are afraid of, the managers you say aren't coming back? Are they afraid of the virus or are they afraid of, uh, of the legal system, perhaps, and the legal implications of getting back, bringing people back if it isn't entirely safe? You know, you make a really good point. This whole issue of liability capping is so critical. Uh, you, you cannot take a look at, let's say, what happened in New York City and compare it to what happened in Miami. Miami happened several months after what happened in New York City. The lessons learned in New York City have helped everyone else in the world. It's nobody's fault that these things occurred when we didn't know what was going on. Now that you do know what's going on, however, you have to take prudent steps, wear a mask, have your distancing, have your cleaning, uh, do the appropriate measures. That said, mm. uh, it, it is a matter where you can operate uh, at the occupancy, which is allowable. Uh, we're operating at the Empire State Building Observatory right now. Uh, we've got the same ventilation there, depending upon the density that we planned for visitors there. We, the fresh air right. comes into that space three to 22 times an hour. Very quickly here, Tony Malkin, last question. What portion of rents are not being paid? So uh, in, in uh, July, we reported 91% collection uh, lower in retail than in office. Very good. Tony Malkin, thank you so much. Just really, really love having you on. We'll do this again soon with Empire State at Realty Trust. Mr. Malkin, of course, uh, part of New York City. I really can't say enough about the Bloomberg article. Right now, we need a clinic on the equity market. We turn to Lori Calvacina of RBC Capital Markets, our head of all of U.S. equity strategy as well. Lori, what will you write about? What will you frame for Monday morning? So look, I think it's a quiet week. I think that there hasn't been a ton of news, but the news that has come out has moved markets. And I think what my takeaway for the week so far is that there's still an undercurrent of nervousness. I mean, arguably the Fed minutes really shouldn't have rattled markets and it's not like they rattled them in a major way, but they did reveal that there's still some underlying concern about this fork in the road that the US economy seems to be at. Which way are we going? Are we going to start recovering again after a bit of a plateau over the summer? Or are we going to take a another leg down. And I think markets are still concerned about that. We have seen a reaffirmation this week, Lori, of digital dominance. We see it in any number of companies. We all know them, Home Depot, Walmart, et cetera, Apple with a $2 trillion valuation as well. How do you do a strategy in a time of big box digital dominance? 
So our call has been not to chase all of the little individual moves. And we think that we're going to see a lot of volatility in terms of leadership at the style level, at the sector level. Um, we're continuing to tell people to stay balanced between things like growth and value. We're neutral on the tech and TIMT space. We fully understand what's driving it. And as well as those big box retailers, the, the work from home, um, you know, sort of quarantine type names, we get what's going on there. But we think we're going to see a lot of volatility that this is going to be a long, uneven recovery. And you just need to buy the best in the cyclical camp, the defensive camp, and the longer-term growth camp, and not try to chase all of these little individual moves, because we think you'll get whiplash. Wise words. Laurie, uh, good morning. Why do you not have a more positive view on small caps? If you think they're cheap, if you think they could have the potential yeah. to catch up with some of those big box moves that Tom was talking about there, and if they're under-owned and they, and they like recoveries, why not go more aggressively into the smaller cap end? So our call on small cap is very nuanced based on your time horizon. And, you know, I think everybody on the street likes to think of themselves as a long-term investor, but at the end of the day, a lot of people aren't and can't really afford to be. A lot of people live in that kind of six months, next few quarters, one year time horizon. If you're in that six to 12 month time horizon, we think you should stay neutral. Um, we think that the small caps are giving you a historic valuation opportunity. That being said, we do also think that they're functioning the way that they typically function as cyclical expressions of confidence in the market. So as we, you know, as we think one of the reasons, frankly, they haven't broken out in a bigger way is that there are still all these doubts about the near-term trajectory of the economy. But if you really are in your heart of hearts a three to five year investor and you can ignore the noise of the next year, know we will come out of this. We know that valuations are back to tech bubble extremes. And what I mean by that is that small caps are historically cheap relative to large caps. So we think you're going to be in a good place in this trade on a three to five year view. But over the next six to 12 months, our confidence level is a bit lower. And so we want to be intellectually honest about that. OK, so you'd be a bit more cautious there. Picking up on something you said earlier about the fork in the road, and it, and it makes me wonder whether actually what we're dealing with in the US is many, 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 many different forks because yeah. of the sheer size of the economy and the way that the coronavirus regulations are being implemented rightly in a very localised fashion. And you can apply this to Europe to some extent. If we don't see big lockdowns, big statewide or big countrywide lockdowns, if they are more nuanced, more targeted, that's going to make the job of, of, of working out which fork in the road is going to be taken here for the for the big picture economy that's going to make that really difficult I think that's true. And, you know, we're all watching this alternative high frequency economic data, things like the open table restaurant bookings, flying trends, uh, public transit activity, that sort of stuff. And one of the things that we do on my team is in addition to looking at it at, say, U.S. versus Europe, where we can, we try to look at the different regions around the country within the U.S. And we noticed, you know, over the summer, as the case counts were rising in Texas and Arizona and Florida, you were seeing different reactions in consumer confidence. You were seeing different reactions in mobility and engagement. Um, the, the trends were simply not uniform across region, different regions of the country. Oftentimes, the, US, the Northeast was looking a bit better than some of these other hotspots. Um, and I think that makes it very, very difficult. Um, but at the end of the day, um, what we're seeing at the national level is the data has generally plateaued. A few things are starting to perk up a little bit, but a lot of stuff has stayed stalled. And that's telling me this economy hasn't decided which way it wants to head yet. Will we see M&A here in the coming quarters simply because of a dearth of revenue growth? 
I think you'll get M&A down the road. Um, you know, one of the things our industrial analyst, Dean Dre, has talked about is just how strong the balance sheets are of his companies. And he thinks they'll have a lot of dry powder down the road once confidence returns to go out and do some deals. Um, and I think that's probably a pretty true statement of the broader market. Um, but I'll tell you, Tom, as I went through the transcripts of this last reporting season, one thing that really struck me was that companies, when they were giving guidance, we're giving you a quarter's worth, not generally anything yeah. more than that. Um, and also, you know, there are a lot of companies that said, hey, things are better in June and July, but still had a cautious tone about the longer term outlook. So that's telling me they're going to keep that dry, that powder dry for a little bit longer. Oh, I mean, I'm glad you mentioned Dean Dre. He's just wonderful on Honeywell yes. and on the other great yeah. industrials and what I'd almost call multinational industrials yeah. as well. I know you can't talk individual stocks, but what does Mr. Dre tell you about the confidence of these executives? You know, what I, what I think we've heard on the industrial side is that the trade war you know, it really was uh, was was a great sort of test run for this. Not intentionally, obviously. Nobody saw this coming. Um, but these companies are really focused on cost cutting. They're really focused on margins. They're trying to defend the dividends. They're really in a good place to weather this pandemic. And that's really, you know, what I've seen in my work. That's also what I've been hearing from Dean and some of our other industrial analysts. And I'm actually overweight the industrial sector. While I have, you know, an expectation that this market is going to give back some of the gains in the final few months of the year, and I don't want to be wholly insecure cyclicals right now. Industrials is the one spot in cyclicals that I'm really comfortable leaning into at the sector level. Lori Calvacina, thank you so much with RBC Capital Markets. Thanks. There's a really great indecision about where we're heading on inflation and particularly on the general economy. Kathy Jones studies this. She has a great joy of working with Lizanne Saunders at Charles Schwab. It's arguably the best flow team on the street. Kathy, a question I'd ask Lizanne, let me ask it of you as well. Schwab sees the flow of money like nobody. What are you seeing right now among Schwab clients? Are they in the markets? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think our clients have learned the lesson of hanging in there uh, through the ups and downs of the markets. Uh, they, you know, there's there's a lot of different clients, so each has a different uh, kind of view. But in general, our clients have stayed in. Uh, we didn't see a big exodus when the economy declined. And we've <laughs> actually seen uh, clients come back and, uh, and increase their positions as the markets improved. What is your general yield prediction given the worries this morning over future aggregate demand? Yeah, so we've been saying since the beginning of the year that we thought, the, well, actually since the pandemic hit, that we thought the 10-year yield would stay in a 50 to you know 85, 100 basis point range this year. We're looking for a continued improvement in the economy, but the pace will probably slow down now that we've had this, this quick rebound. Uh, and we think that that puts a lid on uh, the upper end of yields. But with the um, improvement in the economy, even to a small extent, or even if we continue to just kind of uh, roll along here should hold 10-year yields around 50 basis points. And of course, the short end is completely anchored by the Fed um, near zero. So there's not going to be a lot of play there. 
Cathy, good to speak to you. Anna in London. Uh, let me go into the minutes we're just getting through from the ECB, just dropping across the Bloomberg right now. Uh, they talk about positive market developments not being fully backed by data. Let's remember this is for July. This is the minutes of the 15th to the 16th of July. But something catches my eye, Cathy, and that is what they're saying around the PEP. And that's the plan that the ECB put in place, of course, to, uh, to buy up assets. Some said in the minutes that the PEP envelope should be a ceiling, not a target. And I wonder if that will lead some to conclude that maybe the ECB isn't about to increase the amount of money it puts into the PEP in the future. What, do, what are you expecting to see? Um, I think that that's still going to be somewhat flexible. You know, in the ECB, you have different uh, different factions there. And I think probably that statement off the top of my head sounds like they're trying to satisfy different, uh, different factions within the ECB. But I do think that there's still, under Christine Lagarde, this, you know, uh, continuation of the draggy whatever it takes philosophy. So if they have to increase, they will increase. But in, in the short run, that probably sends a little bit of a signal that will firm up the euro uh, if people believe there is a ceiling on it. Yeah, they're also saying that they expect more clarity about inflation and the outlook for that in September. They'll have plenty more data to play with in September. When it comes to the, the, the global conversation that seems to be going on around inflation, Kathy, if we can if we can talk globally about inflation, I know these things are are much more nuanced and geographical. But in general terms, we spent many years with central banks struggling to get inflation rates to meet their targets in developed markets. This is going to be even more difficult now, isn't it, with unemployment rates as high as they are or as high as they're going to be. So where do you see the inflation narrative going? Yeah, I think it's going to be a real struggle. We've got several years here before we you know, close those output gaps. We get unemployment rates down. We get wages up enough that you have you know, enough money in people's pockets to fuel some inflation. It's going to take a couple of years, but I'm not in the doom and gloom sort of deflation camp. I think the abundant liquidity and the efforts of the central banks will mean that we will gradually see a little bit better inflation. But it's going to take time because... <clears throat> With double-digit unemployment and, and all of the damage that's been done to the major developed economies, uh, economies around the world, it's, it's going to take some time. Now, Kathy, you know, we just had launched on, on Bloomberg, folks. This is an incredibly important story, and I'll get it out. Uh, Sridhar Natarajan and Natalie Wong on the real estate and the emptiness of our big cities. The article focuses on New York City, but uh, Anna Edwards, to be honest, I saw a like article on London a couple weeks ago as well. Kathy Jones, does Schwab just assume that there will be a lower GDP number and that the level we get back to could even be sub 2% real GDP? No, I don't think we're assuming that at all. Um, I, you know, we do know that there are structural changes taking place. So a commercial real estate is certainly an area where there are a lot of questions as to how that's going to evolve. But I, I really take a more optimistic view of things. If you look at how anxious people are to get back to their quote unquote normal lives, uh, what you see is they're willing to risk you know, their health and well-being in order to just go to a bar or have a party or go to the gym. Um, I'm actually fairly optimistic about the resilience of the um, major economies uh, once once we get further down the road. Obviously, a vaccine right. would be a huge game changer. But I, I don't assume that we necessarily go to a lower level of economic activity below 2% going forward. I think we can get back to that 2 to 2.5% area. I don't know that we can go beyond it, but so 2 I to 2.5%. 
Well, that's terrible. yield up. At some point, that's yield up, price down. How do you protect on price erosion on fixed income? Well, right now we're keeping duration a little bit short of average or whatever the benchmark is. So if you take the ag, the benchmark, uh, it's around six or seven right now. We'd keep it a little bit shorter because the risk reward at the long end just isn't that great unless you have a very deflationary outlook, which we don't have. So we're keeping duration a little bit short. Um, we like high quality credit, you know, investment grade credit. Uh, you can actually take some duration there and get a bit more yield, and you can venture out into some of the riskier segments of the market uh, if you have the risk appetite for a little bit um, and get some duration plus yield there. Yeah, what is appetite like for some of the new issuance we've uh, seen coming through, Kathy, from the corporate world in, in the U.S.? And I'm thinking here of investment grade. I was looking at a chart that showed issuance at a record for the year, and that was on Monday. So midway through August, we've already reached a, a full year record on, on corporate issuance. Is there still the appetite? Can the market still soak this up? Oh, I think so. Um, if you look at the, the issue that Apple did a little while ago, um, I think investment grade will find very strong appetite. You know, we have the support programs from the Fed. We know the Fed has been <clears throat> buying some investment grade. You can't get a lot of yield anywhere. And um, when you're up in credit quality, there's just tremendous demand for some sort of yield out there. And IG definitely satisfies that. Uh, Kathy, thank you so much. Kathy Jones with Charles Schwab, greatly appreciated. What we know for certain is that the gentleman from Delaware has to go out and find disaffected Republicans. That's happened before, including the disaffected Republican Dean family of years ago, where Howard Dean wandered from GOP over to the Democratic Party and had a sterling career in Vermont and wandered out as a presidential candidate just a few years ago. We're thrilled that Howard Dean could join us this morning, the former DNC chair. Howard, the vice president has to go out and find disaffected Republicans. How does he do that? Actually, he doesn't. He's going to do that, but he doesn't. All he has to do is get a bigger turnout than we had in 2016, and I think they're well on their way to doing that. But this is a, co a convention that is aimed at Republicans who just want to see honesty back in our government. Uh, and that's why you had two or three pretty big Republican figures, uh, John Kasich, Cindy McCain, and Colin Powell, basically giving permission for disaffected Republicans to vote for Joe Biden uh, it was, it's, this is a good job. They, I don't think conventions are ever going to go back to the way they were. Mm. This convention has been very effective with this format, and it's obviously much less expensive and much easier logistically. What happens when these two odd conventions are over? How do the Democrats move forward to get the vote out and to get those independents and disaffected Republicans? Well, that's why you're seeing so much hassle about the mail system and Trump's attempt to disrupt the mail. Uh, it's clearly going to be mail ballots. In Vermont, we had the largest turnout in the history of the primary. The primary vote was up something like 30 percent over the previous record of primary voters. That's just unheard of. Uh, and I think, you know, voting by mail is convenient. People like it. Five states, including Utah and Oregon, both at the opposite ends of the political polls, have been doing this for a while. And it's very successful and people like it, regardless of their party. So that's going to be a critical key is, is have the post office run uh, and function properly. And that's a big get out the vote tool.
Howard Dean, is, is it easier to vote by post than vote in person? It's far, well, it's much easier in the COVID epidemic where you have to worry about getting a you know, pretty serious medical problem. And, uh, and it's always been a problem, uh, and more so recently, voting machines. The voting machine technology really doesn't work in this country uh, because they've adopted a system that uh, you can't really recount it. You just keep staring at the number, and that's, and that's the recount. Uh, now, there are some states that don't use that technology. Uh, you, that you can actually see ballots that get counted by machine, which is the right way to go. So voting in this country has been a big problem since about 2000 with a very controversial Bush versus Gore uh, court case. And we need to do much better there. Uh, what is the message that the Democrats should do now to, to make sure that people just turn out and vote? Right? How, how do you energize people? That uh, well, it's pretty, you know, Trump is the energizer. I mean, most most uh, inter, interim elections uh, when a president's running for re-election is about as a referendum on the president. So Trump is our best weapon. Uh, Trump is incredibly destructive. He's certainly the most dishonest president we've ever had. And going back over the years, that's quite a statement to make. So people are first, they're going to go out and vote against Trump. Second of all, they do want decency. One of the great things about Biden's candidacy, even though he's 78 years old and all this stuff, is he's a decent guy. And he does listen to people. He has empathy, which Trump completely lacks. So there's going to be a huge contrast between the personal styles. And I know we all talk about issues and what people are going to do. But the real issue is always, does this person care about people like me? And Joe Biden does and Trump doesn't. Where do you sit, Dr. Dean, with the idea of shocking the nation in October into the third week of October by starting to announce cabinet members? If this is a President Biden who has to delegate authority for whatever the reasons, can he like tear up the political playbook and say so and so will be my secretary of state, so and so will be my secretary of treasury? That's controversial. I thought about that when I was running. Yeah. Um, the, I, the reason people don't do it, I think, is because um, there's some concern that if you do that, it appears that you're trading your uh, your cabinet appointment for a uh, for support. And, uh, you know, I've, I've always heard this. Uh, we thought about doing it ourselves. That was an explanation I got from a lawyer. Uh, so that, I think, may have something to do with the fact that candidates just don't do that. What is the best process for the uh, vice president when he debates President Trump? We, you know, we saw the debate of, of Trump-Clinton. How should Biden debate the sitting president? He, should, he just needs to be himself. Trump will get out there and say all kinds of outlandish things about conspiracy theories and drinking bleach and God knows what else. And Biden just has to be himself. For whatever Biden's position on the political spectrum, and he's probably more conservative than I am, um, he's just a good guy. And just people would like to have a normal president again after this four years of reality television. So he just has to be himself. And if he makes a flub or says something, you know, that's, uh, you know, that's uh, out of line and out of whack, he's been doing that for 35 years. He's, it just makes him more human. But Howard Dean, I also keep on reading that actually there is a lot more Googling on conspiracy theories. I think we had a story, um, you know, on QAnon and the fact that President Trump didn't say it, it, it was nonsense. Does it really, you know, is it really, you know, taking ground in the U.S.? Are a lot more people, um, you know, believing in conspiracy theories or is it just still a very small part? Well, it's a small part, but it's a lot more people than it was because Trump floats these conspiracy theories and then QAnon. Look, he has he has energized that what I would call the crackpot right. 
Um, and, and it's a problem. And because people do believe this kind of stuff. I mean, we did, we seriously did have two Americans who died because they drank a swimming pool cleaner because Trump apparently recommended that that was how you're going to get rid of coronavirus. I mean, really, you know, I, I hate to say that. I think I don't hate to say it. It's true. I think Trump is crazy. I really do think he's mentally unbalanced and he's been mentally imbalanced most of his life. Dr. Dean, we didn't have you on to talk politics. We need to get some medicine out of the way here uh, right now. We have a new solution for this virus. It is a derivative called oleander or oleandrine, whatever it is. And the president has not endorsed it, but said, quote, we'll look at it. Can you speak to our global audience about the pathology and the, the almost the physiology of these, these easy solutions on a virus? The pathology is that there are no easy solutions. There are plenty of fantastic sciences, scientists in many countries around the globe. There's 100 potential vaccines, several of which are probably going to work. I think the most, uh, most furthest, furthest along is AstraZeneca and Oxford University in, in the UK. Uh, that appears to be far advanced and because the drug company is going to do a, a, an unusual kind of test called a challenge test, which will even move that. And they're also already making doses. On the come, that is, uh, to, to take the risk of making something that's not going to work. I think it will work. Uh, it certainly isn't going to be there by the election, uh, but it, you know, it's possible it'll be there uh, by January, and that will make a difference. It won't make a difference right away because there's seven billion people in the world, and at least sixty or seventy percent of them have to be vaccinated in order to get herd immunity. Uh, but these crackpot theories, people should not. I mean, the president of the United States should just keep his mouth shut, but that's clinically impossible for us. Dr. Dean, thank you so much. Howard thank Dean, you. of course, the former DNC chair. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.